this story of God's grand providence. And from this point forward, where we're at today, Joseph will only ascend. There will be no more descending in the life of this man. He will rise to greatness. God will elevate him in Egypt in order to accomplish his purposes. So the title for the sermon this morning is From the Prison to the Pharaoh. And one of the things I want to do for you quickly is just divide up chapter 41. You know, when you come to a passage, you ask yourself the question, especially as you're preaching through consecutively, how much of this passage am I going to take in a sermon? And I suppose one could take all of chapter 41, but what I've decided to do is break chapter 41 up into two parts. And what we're going to look at today is the first part, which extends, I think, from verses 1 to 37. In the first part, this deals with Joseph being before Pharaoh. Joseph is brought from prison to stand before Pharaoh in order to interpret his dreams. And the reason that I've included, and you can look at the way the text is divided in your ESV Bibles, they divide it at 36, after 36. But the reason I have included verse 37 is because it gives Pharaoh's initial response to Joseph's words. So verses 1 to 37 we'll look at today. And then the second part, which we'll look at next time, deals with Joseph's rise to power. And this runs from verse 38 all the way to the end of the chapter. So I just want to set up for you what we'll be doing in the next couple of sermons here on the story of Joseph. So let me just ask this question. We've been in this story for some time now. And I think we're forced to ask, why is the story of Joseph so compelling? Why is it so powerful? Why is it so intriguing? And I think there are several reasons, but First, I think we should say that it is not merely a classic story of from rags to riches. I think in some respects, the reason the story of Joseph is so well known or so popular is because it is indeed a story of rags to riches. Maybe the best story of rags to riches in all of the world As it gives us this slave prisoner who is elevated to the top position under Pharaoh in Egypt. That, of course, is part of it. But I don't think that's why we find this story so compelling. It is not merely an interesting interweaving of Israelite history with Egyptian history. Maybe Uh, That's one of the ways you've come at this story before. Maybe you've thought, this is fascinating. I mean, here we have the Bible coming together with the history of probably the most famous, next to Rome, or maybe right there beside Rome, the most famous civilization in the history of the world. The civilization of ancient Egypt. And here we have biblical history being intertwined with Egyptian history. In fact, I've seen many documentaries over the years. And one of the things that I've I've gleaned from some of those is it seems like a number of Egyptologists all over the world, some way or another, became Egyptologists because they had encountered these stories in the Bible where the the history, they, they were raised in a Christian home or raised in church or around Christians. And these stories 
caused them to be intrigued by the history of this ancient people. People who have left us these incredible architectural achievements, the pyramids. And so we do recognize that this story is a classic story of rags to riches. And it is a very interesting story that ties together some of the most fascinating parts of human history. Those are not the reasons we find this story so compelling. The reason, the power of this story comes from its presentation of God's providence. And here is what is so fascinating about this story with regard to God's providence. In the story of Joseph, we have a God who is in control at a very high level. In human history, we have the God of the nations. We have a God who is working in the hearts and minds of world rulers and leaders. This is God's grand providence. But it's not just that. I think what makes the story of Joseph so intriguing, so fascinating, and so moving is that while we have this great God who is sovereign over rulers, over nations, over the outworking of history, he is also a God who is providentially, intimately involved in Joseph's life in the pit. So we're not just talking about a God who rules way up there, transcendent over the nations, who only cares about the headlines in the New York Times. But we're talking about a God who is intimately involved in the tiny little details of an insignificant slave prisoner in Egypt. This is the God we've come to worship this morning. This is why the story of Joseph is so compelling. For the Christian, it reminds us that this God is both the king of the universe and our personal Lord and Savior. That you can, you can talk to him any time. The veil has been torn through Christ. He has placed his blood on the mercy seat. And we come boldly into the throne room of God. And we say, any moment, anywhere, at the highest mountain, in the depths of the sea, floating through space, oh God, Father. And he responds. He hears. He is present and yet he is the king of all nations this is the god of joseph this is the god of the bible this is the god we praise today and i think this story also gives us much hope because in many ways the story of joseph is typical of the christian life and i've i've said this in various ways at various times so far but the story of joseph is typical of the life we live as christians we are as it were in the pit of our sanctification We are moving through this life, finding ourselves in various pits, fighting against sin, mortifying the flesh, struggling with trials, being mistreated, being persecuted. Hundreds of thousands of Christians persecuted annually. We are in the pit. And yet, 
The Bible holds out for us the pinnacle, the palace. The Bible holds out for us a future day in which we will have no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow or sadness, no more pits, no more sin, no more trials. We will reign with Christ in glory. That's the hope of the Christian. So Joseph's story in this sense is a picture of our story. Humiliation, one day, glory. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 41, verses 1 to 37. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Sufficient to equip us for every good work. After two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing in one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none, none, who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. He and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them up, when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them. For they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. 
I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. And I want to rope in here Pharaoh's initial response, or at least what the text tells us. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord now and ask for his blessing on our time in his word that he would feed us. You know, this is our food. Uh, Without the word we starve We are famished without the scriptures, the food of the Christian soul. So let's ask God for his help. Father, we come this morning to feed upon your word. We come to see your glory in the face of Christ as we understand your word. God, we thank you that you have brought us to this place today that you have brought us among this people. As Craig prayed earlier, Lord, the church is the people, not the place. And we are here gathered together. We are seeing your glory in the changed hearts of your people. As we hear the praises of lips, we are hearing the sound of converted hearts. We are seeing the fruit of the new covenant brought about by Christ's finished work and the application of that by the Holy Spirit. We praise you, Father, for the work of the Spirit in our lives, that that he gives us his fruit, that holy fruit of Christ's life, that through him we come to look more and more like you, Lord, through this life, and yet we see more and more how much we are not like you, O God. We see more and more the web of our own sinfulness, the depths of our depraved flesh. We cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And we respond with Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve God with my mind walking in the Spirit as he goes on to say, Father, we praise you that we have this new life through Christ. We pray that this morning you would speak to each of us. You would convict us of sin. As Paul tells Timothy that we would be reproved, that we would be instructed and taught in righteousness, that we would be made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, that we would be fully equipped, ready for every good work. Lord, that our hearts would be cleansed and purified through your life-giving word. We ask, God, that you'd be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we witness Joseph's transition from the prison to the Pharaoh, which is what we're at here at the beginning of chapter 41, there are three developments to take note of. And you'll see those up here on the screen. Three developments that we find in the first part of chapter 41. So first, we have the success remembered. Secondly, the slave released. And then finally, the speech Received. So let's look at each of these first, the success remembered. Chapter 41 begins with a problem that needs a solution. Pharaoh has had a couple of dreams and there is no one to interpret them. This is not just a cupbearer or a baker. This is not just a random person who's had dreams. This is the Pharaoh of Egypt who has had dreams and he can find no one to tell him what they mean. We'll say more about the dreams in a moment, but for now it's important to see at the very least that these dreams are disturbing They're disturbing in and of themselves. Apparently, they are quite vivid. Apparently, they make clear to Pharaoh that they are significant. Not like those dreams where you wake up in the morning and you're like, so I was on an island, and then I was in a building, and then I was eating a donut, and then I was riding in a car. You know, random bits of information just sort of crammed together that make absolutely no sense. Not one of those kinds of dreams. Vivid and clear to Pharaoh, but disturbing most of all because of what's depicted. It is grotesque to him. First, seven healthy cows are devoured by seven gaunt, emaciated cows. Cows the likes of which Pharaoh has never seen in all of Egypt, disgusting creatures, barely alive. They are so thin and skeletal. And second, seven full and healthy ears of grain are devoured by seven thin and withered ears of grain, Probably not as vivid, not as disturbing and grotesque, but clearly the two have some kind of connection. Twice Pharaoh dreamed, and twice he awoke, we read. And after waking up the second time, he is left troubled and without any help. So look at verse 8. Verse 8. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. 
Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, later on, we read earlier with Daniel, he wants them to tell him what the dreams were and the interpretations. He leaves, and he's going to kill all of his wise men if they don't do it. It's incredible. He recognizes that there could be all sorts of tricks and all sorts of speculations. But in this particular case, Pharaoh gives them the dream, but no one can make anything of it. And I don't know what the scene was in the court. Perhaps they're arguing with each other. Uh, No one is able to put all of the pieces together. Maybe there are these haphazard attempts to understand the dreams, but they leave out certain bits and details. And you can imagine them saying, this is what it means. And then Pharaoh goes, but what about this part? And they just look like a deer in headlights. I have no idea. No one could interpret these dreams. This is significant because they are Pharaoh's dreams, but also because the Egyptians were particularly known for the emphasis that they placed on dreams. In fact, the Egyptians had these special books, these holy, pagan, magical, sorcery books that they would consult to try to understand dreams. There's a whole industry of this among the priestly class. Their magicians had these books and they consulted them in order to understand dreams. And you can imagine them perhaps feverishly flipping through these books and they have nothing. Stumped they are. But here, they are all left scratching their heads They have nothing to offer Pharaoh of substance. They are presented as ignorant and powerless. And it is at this point, at this point and no other, that we are pulled back into chapter 40. Or you could say it is at this point that we are pulled back into the pit with this Hebrew slave prisoner named Joseph. We are pulled back into the pit with this waiting Joseph. This Joseph who's been waiting and waiting and waiting for two whole years, we're told at the very beginning. Look at verses 9 to 12. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody. In the house of the captain of the guard, and we dreamed. And on the same night, he and I, each having, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. Now... At this point, now we see clearly what God was up to in the prison. And so, of course, as you read any narrative, any story, you, especially in the biblical account, you're looking ahead, you know where things are going, but you're trying to imagine yourself working through this sequentially, and you're watching this unfold frame by frame. And it's now, at this point, that the previous chapter begins to make sense. Only now do we understand what was going on in the prison with those mysterious dreams. 
Now, we see clearly why Joseph had to wait two whole years. Had the cupbearer mentioned Joseph to Pharaoh before now? Can you imagine it? If the cupbearer had been released and gone back to Pharaoh and gotten himself situated first, recognizing, okay, I'm good, I'm, I'm here, I got my job back, everything's fine, and then... He kind of knocks on Pharaoh's door and says, by the way, I just want to let you know, I want to give a reference here to you about this man that I met in the prison, and his name was Joseph. He's a Hebrew slave, and I just want to, to let you know he's a great guy. And he interpreted my dreams, and, uh, and they came true. Interpreted our dreams, and they came true. Had that happened, Pharaoh would have just shrugged it off. Of what importance was that to him? Who cares? Pharaoh would have likely said. But now, Pharaoh does care. Pharaoh is desperate, and Joseph's services are required. It's only now at this point that what God did in those dreams in chapter 40 and the ability to interpret those dreams, it's only now that it becomes meaningful and significant. It's only now that it is able to have some sort of cause and effect relationship that will elevate Joseph and that will push forward God's plan. The other night in uh, our family worship time, we've been reading through this book by Marty Mikowski. It's called Theology. I don't know if you have that book. It's a great way to teach biblical doctrine to kids. It's a great little systematic theology for children. But recently, one of the truths that it so succinctly presented there and, uh, and, and did such a good job presenting it, but one of the truths that we recently came across was that God knows everything. God is all-knowing. He is omniscient. We are not. Not even close. Not even close It's not as though God is all-knowing and we are most-knowing. God is all-knowing and we are very little-knowing. We live in this tiny little tunnel of our lives. We have these very few interactions. We have very few, relatively speaking, relationships of substance. Even if you have umpteen thousand friends on Facebook or people follow you, on Twitter or whatever else. We have very few people in our direct sphere of life. We know so little about cause and effect relationships and the inter- inner workings of the world. God is infinitely greater than us in his wisdom. He is all knowing. And what this tells us is that we must wait on God because he knows when The win is right. God knows the timing that must be in order for his purposes to unfold in our lives. Do you trust that? You're here this morning. I'm here this morning. And we've got all sorts of things we're waiting waiting on God to do. We're waiting for God to act on our behalf in our circumstances. And we grumble and we get frustrated. I'm in numbers right now reading. And the children of Israel, the Israelites, are just grumbling at God about everything. We grumble. We grumble because we fail to trust that God is, in fact, all-knowing. 
And do you see once again how important doctrine is for life? That unless we read the Bible enough to come away with a clear understanding of God's characteristics, that he is wise, that he is all-knowing, that he does things at the right time perfectly according to his purposes, unless we are immersed in the biblical world where those things are taught to our hearts and our minds, we will grumble. We won't trust God in those moments. It is the Spirit's work, the Spirit's work to take the word of Christ that glorifies Him. The Spirit glorifies the Son and His word to take it and put it into our hearts so that when we come to face difficulties and waiting in life, we have the grace to do so. And what is most important here in these opening verses is verse 13. Verse 13. The chief cupbearer says of Joseph, and as he interpreted to us, listen to this, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. It is Joseph's success that is remembered. The baker, or the cupbearer rather, remembers what Joseph had accomplished. He remembers Joseph's success in interpreting their dreams. Joseph did not just interpret, he interpreted them accurately. His success is contrasted with the failure of all the pagan magicians of the court. You know, when you read through these opening verses, there is a great contrast between those disgusting-looking cows and those plump, healthy cows. And there's quite a contrast between those withered-up ears of grain and those healthy, full ears of grain. But I would submit to you that the greatest contrast that we have in these verses is this Hebrew slave prisoner and all the magicians of the court. They can do nothing. All that Egyptian religion has to offer is zero. And this man has the answers from God. So, if the disturbing dreams of Pharaoh are the problem, to go back to where I started here, Joseph is the solution. And so that leads to our next point, which is the slave released. We see the success remembered, and now we look at the slave released. As soon as Pharaoh hears about this Hebrew who can interpret dreams, he springs into action. I mean, verse 14 is so fast-paced. Do you see how it moves? Let's look at it. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. One minute, literally, One minute, Joseph is stuck in the pit of prison. And the next, he is groomed and standing nicely clothed in the presence of the ruler of Egypt. Just like that. Rapidly. And I think this reminds us of something. We can't miss this. God can change your circumstances in a moment. He has the power to do that. Do you have a big God in your mind when you go to him in prayer? 
Do you have this God, the biblical God in mind? The, the problem is oftentimes we are praying to an idol. We are praying to a figment of our imagination or we have a very small God. This God is the one to whom we pray. And this God can change your circumstances in a second. So if he doesn't, it's not because he can't. It's because he won't. Because his will is for your good. It's perfect. It's wise. And yet we pray persistently to this God. We, we have not because we ask not. James says we pray persistently as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. We pray asking God for the things of this life that we need. We pray asking God to watch over our souls as, as all of those beautiful prayers of Paul for the various churches. We pray knowing that God can do things mighty, and he can do them now. He doesn't have to wait. He is able. We are reminded of that as we see this very rapid shift. Psalm 105 verse 20 describes it this way. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. Here, Joseph is immediately brought from the state of slavery, to stand before this highest of world rulers. Once Joseph is in front of him, Pharaoh wastes absolutely no time communicating the problem. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Pharaoh recognizes, at least uh, at this point, that Joseph has an impressive resume, or at least a word-of-mouth resume. He has done this twice. He has interpreted the dream of the cupbearer, and the cupbearer lives to tell the story. And he has interpreted the dream of the baker, who has not lived to tell anything. You can imagine this moment you would have been there, you would have been able to hear a pin drop. All the court, all the court of Pharaoh is looking at Joseph. Verse 15, Pharaoh addresses Joseph and everyone is waiting in anticipation for this Hebrew slave to speak. Because no one in that court has the ability to do anything to clarify to interpret, to make known, stripped of their power, stripped of their knowledge, all eyes on this great grandson of Abram, of Abraham. What does he say? Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, period. That's it. A very concise, brief response. And what I want to do, I want to burrow down into that response for a moment. There are several things that we need to observe about Joseph's response. And then we need to account for it. So we want to observe it, and then we want to account for it. So what do we see here in this response? I think the first thing we see is the humility of it. 
the glory, says Joseph, belongs to God. God is the one who can do this, not me. The glory belongs to God alone. This is one of the things that we would associate with God's people. God's people going all the way back to righteous Abel, to use the words of Jesus. Going all the way back to the beginning. God's people throughout history. One of the marks of God's people is that they love the glory of God. And that the glory of God so overshadows our own glory. We love our glory. We love to be praised. From the time we are little kids, we love to be praised by people. We love to be patted on the back. And there is a sense in which that that is very normal and healthy to take pride in our work and the things we do. Read Ecclesiastes. There is a a kind of natural humanness to that that makes sense and that is good and right and true. But we take it far beyond that. We love to be praised. We love to exalt ourselves. We love to just sit and swim around in our successes. Think about the last time that something went really well for you. That you did something right or well. Did you not just in your mind just sort of let it swirl around? Oh, it feels so good to my soul. That's what we do. Because we love our glory. Apart from Christ, we are children of the devil. He loves himself so much that in glory, in heaven, he could not worship God because he wanted to be God. Joseph here humbles himself to the floor. He puts his glory as nothing. I mean, this is an opportunity to revel in his successes. Yes, I have been great. I have done many great things. It's not what we see at all. Joseph will have none of it for himself. And I think this gives us a sense for what missions really is about as well. As we think about missions, here we have this man of God standing before this pagan people. This is a missional context. And what are we, what are we seeing here? I think we're seeing that God wants to magnify his glory among the nations through, get this, his humble servants. Do you see how the glory of God, the magnific- magnification of God among the peoples is interrelated with the humility of the hearts of God's people? God is glorified as we do all that we do in utter Humility. John the Baptist, of course, the great example. He must increase, I must decrease. People all around John wanting him to be the great one. People coming out from all over the place to see John, to hear him preach, and to see him baptized. I mean, he was up on this big, huge pedestal. And then all these people just started kind of leaving John and going to Jesus. And John said, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Christ is Everything. It's about the Lord. So we see the humility. We also see the courage. Pharaoh was thought to be a God. Now think about that for a moment. This is Joseph saying to him, You, supposed God, the true God, will let you know about your dream. In a sense, Joseph here is 
trampling in, in, in a very concise way. He's trampling on Pharaoh's claim to deity. He's trampling on any, any idea that this, this man, this mere man, this son of Adam, this, this one of dust is God. He's nothing. He can't even interpret his own dream. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will make the dream known to him. And the courage that we see here is that Joseph would even say this to Pharaoh, who was thought to be a god. That he would speak so boldly, declaring that the true God can do what Pharaoh and his fellow gods cannot. Even the ones with the crocodile heads and so forth. Nothing can't do anything. So we see the courage, and then we see the faith. We see Joseph's faith. He is confident and concise. God will do this. We've seen this faith before, but I think we also see his faith in how concise he is. Joseph is not out to win favor with Pharaoh. Notice this. He does not, when he stands before Pharaoh, Joseph does not feel as though he needs to say anything to win that man's heart. He does not feel as though he needs to give any extra flattery or give any extra commentary so as now he's out of prison. Now's the moment. This is the great moment. If there was ever a time for him to say his peace for him to let known all the injustices that have been done to him. For him to flatter Pharaoh and let Pharaoh know how great he is. This is it. He does none of that. He knows that the Lord's brought him to this place. And if the Lord's brought him this far, he doesn't need to stroke Pharaoh's ego to be brought further. So we see this faith. What does all this tell us? How do we account for it? Well, what this tells us is that God has graciously maintained and grown Joseph's faith. God has been working in Joseph's heart while he has been in prison. And we could all give testimony to this in the Christian life this morning. You can go back in your life, all of us who are Christians, and you can see instances, periods of time that were very dark, that were very hard, that were very heavy, And you can go back. Everyone in this room who's a Christian knows this to be true. You can look at those moments of darkness, of heaviness, of sadness, of trials. And you will say, God enlarged my heart. God deepened my faith. God strengthened my trust in himself. That's how we account for this. All the grace that God has been doing in Joseph's heart was necessitated. It necessitated all of those trials, all of that waiting. God has been, as John Chrysostom said, as I read last week, he's been refining this gold. He's been testing this man. He's been growing his faith. And that is precisely what God is doing in your trials and my trials. What a gift. Praise God. That's the reason James says what he says. Count it all joy. He doesn't say just get through it. He doesn't say just get through it and trust God. No, he says rejoice. What in the world is that? What worldview on the planet has that mindset besides the Christian gospel? None. We rejoice because we know that the sovereign king of creation 
is working a heart that looks like what we see here. We can be confident in the face of trials that though they be painful, God is shaping the characteristics of Christ in the hearts of his people. What we are witnessing from Joseph is a a preview of the character of Christ. Joseph in many ways functions as a type of Christ in the way that he brings salvation from famine to the Gentiles and to the Jewish people. In the way that he is, he is brought down into the pit and then elevated to the highest place. I read from you Philippians 2 last week. But we also see in his righteousness a type of the righteous one. The Christ who was always courageous. Who was always humble, meek. And who always trusted the Father. What we are seeing here before Pharaoh is the tested genuineness of Joseph's faith. Let me read to you from 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Is Peter's describing their sufferings. And he says, In this you rejoice, like James. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, so rejoicing in their salvation, for now, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brother or sister in Christ, be confident that that is what the Lord is up to in your trials this morning. That's what the Lord is up to in your pain and that he will Elevate you. He will care for you. He is caring for you. After recounting his dreams to Joseph, Pharaoh restates what he has said to him at the beginning. Verse 24. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. I think God is highlighting two things at this point. First, that he is superior to the gods of Egypt, as we just talked about. That the Lord is greater than the gods of Egypt because the gods of Egypt don't exist. They're figments of imagination. And to make it even more explicit, God is doing this through a slave prisoner. Years and decades, these magicians, these foolish men, these wicked pagan men have been spending their days studying the sorcery of the ancients to no avail. And now Joseph in a moment, is able to interpret these dreams. No training. He has God with him. God is declaring his superiority. Second, God is showing that he is the God of all peoples, that he cares for the Egyptians as well. God is working to save the Egyptians from famine. He's working to reveal things to Pharaoh. God is a God of grace and mercy for all people. We see this in Genesis 12, 3. In, all, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, pointing to Christ. God has the nations on his heart. Not just this family, not just this nation of Israel, but the whole world. Romans 15, 12. Quoting Isaiah, Paul says, the root of Jesse will come. That's Christ. The descendant of Jesse, David, the descendant of Judah. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. Listen to this. In him will the Gentiles hope. 
From the very beginning, God has been working. From before the Tower of Babel, God has been working to bring the nations to himself in Christ. Revelation 5, 9, of course, they sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll. Speaking of Christ, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This story, here's my point, reminds us that God has a heart and a compassion for all peoples, all nations, and he has since the beginning. He will keep his promise. He has kept his promise to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman will crush, has crushed the head of the serpent. As we finish this morning, I want you to look at the third point, the speech received. In verses 25 to 36, we have the speech of Joseph. And it involves two things, briefly. First, an interpretation of the dream. Verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Notice this, the dreams are predictive. They are telling the future, it will happen. And notice this, God is the one who will do it. Verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. God brings calamity and God brings blessing and flourishing. Job said it best. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It is God who will bring this famine on the land of Egypt. Once again, we're reminded that he is in control overall. And the dreams are one and the same, Joseph says. There are two ways of saying the same thing. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And not just famine, but this will be a severe famine. The famine will consume the land, verse 31, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine. That will follow for it will be very severe. In other words, these seven years of plenty will be so overshadowed by the seven years of famine that it will be as though they never even happened. Joseph finishes his interpretation by telling Pharaoh that this will certainly happen. Verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it. About. You know what that tells us? Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt are powerless to stop it. You imagine how that would have settled on the ears of Pharaoh and his servants? Hold on, you're telling me that, that God, this God we do not know, is going to bring this famine, and you're telling me that, that it will happen, and there's absolutely nothing that we can do. No magical spells, no special prayers. To Ra or Horus or anyone will prevent this. No. God will certainly do it. And this brings us to the next part of Joseph's speech, the proposal. He makes a proposal. He proposes that Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Verse 33. He proposes the appointment of overseers, a 20% tax, during the years of plenty and the storing up of food as reserves for the years of famine. 
He gives a, a proposal. Any of you who are in business have to go and make your presentation to try to get your customer or your client. It, it, it kind of rings like that. Joseph is essentially putting out a proposal. He is suggesting what, what Pharaoh should do in light of what is coming. So this raises a question. What is going on in Joseph's mind? I mean, is this kind of self-serving? What is he doing at this point? When he suggests that Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, did he have himself in mind? Well, it's very interesting. I read some commentators that say, no, that would have been the furthest thing from Joseph's mind. No, that's wrong. That's not right. And I think that their desire in saying that is to preserve Joseph's humility. Of course, Joseph is just this pious man, and he, he, he's not offering himself up there to fill that post. That's not what he's saying. He, it's the furthest thing from his mind that he would be this guy, the discerning and wise guy. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what we have here is Joseph's faith in God that suggests that he would have known what God was doing, He would have seen it happening before his eyes and that this was the moment that he had been waiting for. Notice this. He has just mentioned to Pharaoh that the certainty of the dreams derives from them being doubled. That when a a dream comes in a two, it indicates the certainty. I don't think Joseph could have said those words to Pharaoh without remembering the two dreams that he had had back in Canaan. Of course, those dreams would have come to his mind. And how many were there? Two. And they were essentially the same. That his family would come to bow down to him. And now, by God's providence, one man at Joseph's suggestion will be chosen to be over all of Egypt. Yes, I think that Joseph has himself in mind. Not in a a self-promoting, prideful way, but in a trusting in God, seeing his providence unfold kind of way. As we close this morning, I have included verse 37 in this passage because it reminds us of what we've seen before. God has elevated Joseph along the way. By causing him to gain favor in the eyes of his superiors. We saw that with Potiphar, with the warden of the prison, the cupbearer. Now Joseph finds favor with the king of Egypt himself, the Pharaoh. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Joseph's success brought him to the very top. But not for the glory of Joseph. I want to go back to this point. Not for the glory of Joseph, but for the outworking of God's plan. God's plan to save, God's plan to preserve, God's plan to relocate, and ultimately God's plan. This is beautiful that we would be sitting here in this building as part of Four Corners Church singing, Oh Lord, have mercy on me in the name of Christ. That, that, that God's plan for us to be Christians, to know God and to go through this life being sanctified and to be with Christ in heaven is on the mind and heart of God as he is doing this in the life of Joseph. How do we know that? 
Because all of this is pointing to Christ. All of this is pointing to the line of Judah, which will be preserved. We've seen the descendants. That line will be preserved. Christ will come. And we are in Christ. We are his body. He knows the number of hairs on every single one of our heads. He loves us. Unfathomably so. He gave his life for us. That's how much he loves us. This is the outworking of our story in Christ. In all of our succeeding, in all of our growth, at every turn when we are tempted to bask in our own successes and glory, we must never forget what history is all about. Colossians 1.16, speaking of Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things. Listen to this, Christian. As you bask in your successes, all things were created through him and for him. He is the story of human history. All of our little glories and successes must bow to that great story. And all that God is doing in the lives of his people are for the outworking of that Story, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.10, to unite all things in heaven and things on earth in him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for what you were doing in the life of Joseph, how you were saving Jacob and his sons, and you were glorifying yourself among the Egyptian people. You were pointing to Christ through Joseph and you were opening the way for Judah's descendants. Lord, you were making the way for us. In him will the Gentiles hope. Lord, we praise you that Christ in the fullness of time came, born of a woman. We thank you that he is both God and man. We thank you that through him our sins are forgiven. Through him we have eternal life. Through him we have power. Our guilt has been removed and we are seated with him, raised with him in heavenly places. And when he returns, we will appear, we will appear with him in glory. Hold us fast, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.